everyone, this is Joe Misella, and welcome to Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we are joined by Professor Joe Musella. Joe is an acclaimed rock guitarist who's toured internationally with several bands like the Hellhounds, Ginnemark, Freestyle, and is a band leader with the Joe Musella Group. Joe is also an alum of Berkeley himself and has taught at Berkeley as a guitar teacher for 25 years, authoring the Jimmy Page and Joe Satriani Guitar Labs. Professor Joe Musella talks about the virtues of being prepared and adaptable for the real-life scenarios live performances present, as well as his approach to developing pedagogy for rock guitar studies. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Joe Musella. Hi everyone, I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department. Welcome to another Coffee Talk. Today, as usual, we have assistant chair Cheryl Bailey with us. Hey Cheryl. Hello everybody. We've got our senior department coordinator Ian Steed. Hey all. And our special guest today is Professor Joe Masella of the guitar department. Hey Joe. Hey Kim. Hey Cheryl. Hey Ian. <laughs> so um joe we've already talked about this a little bit before we got on here but um do you drink coffee tell us a little bit first thing I, I mean one of the best parts of my day is waking up and having it like you know right when i get out of bed i set it up the night before mm -hmm. yeah i love it Ooh. so what do you drink like how do you take it like what what beans well over the years uh, i've you know, I with cream and sugar, and then I kind of like, well, I need to cut sugar out of my life. So then it was just cream. And then, then I was like, I need to cut some weight out. How can I cut calories? So I cut the cream out too. And now I, I enjoy it black. And now I can't drink it any other way. It just doesn't taste right. Okay. So that was my question for you because I always was a half and half person until I came to Berkeley. And, um, and then Larry Bayonne, um, who was our chair then, right? He was so into black coffee and, and he would grab coffee. It was way easier to have two black coffees than, than to like mix them up by accident. And so I got really into it and I got really into the taste of it. And then just the other day, I, I tried having it with half and half again and I couldn't do it. It tastes like all gross to me now if I have it with cream or half and half or whatever. Yeah, all I tasted was the cream. I didn't taste yeah. the coffee anymore. So it was it was unexpected. I kind of thought it would be a nostalgic thing, but in, no, uh, okay. not in this case. So, um, what kind of coffee do you like? I um, I usually go for darker roasts, um, I, whole bean, um, and I'm trying different parts of the world. I I was lucky for because for a number of years um, I had a a private coffee roaster right down the street. Oh, nice. Um, I became friends with. So this one is, um, I think this one is Bali again, which is really nice. Um, and I mean, it was kind of cool to go in there and he would show you the green beans and mm -hmm. um, take you through the whole process. And so um, before that, I had gone for super, super dark roasts that were almost smoky. And now I've kind of come yeah. back a little bit from that just to hear it, taste the flavors of the different countries. So yeah, yeah. What about you? Same. I like darker coffees. And I try different ones. I don't go to any roasters. There's none around here, but um, I know some other guys that do and have given me some, and that, that is a delicious way to go. But lately I've been into, uh, just because it's easy to get, Javalier French roast. Yeah. And, well, I, and I found the big bag on um, Amazon. So now I just have it delivered every two weeks. So I never, because nothing worse than waking up and realizing you're out of coffee. And then you have to teach a lesson. You don't have time to go get it. But I try to stay well stocked. <laughs> it's really true how the, the coffee and the guitar go together. It's almost like a panic if I can't have it before I start teaching. That's happened uh, a couple of times. I have to rough it with tea. <laughs> well, now you know a roaster, though, in your presence here. 
There's a private roaster right here. Well, yeah, I'll hook you up, Joe, next when we're back on campus. Okay. My, my little skillet style roasting, home, home roaster. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I would get into that. You, and do you order your own beans? Yeah, I order the green beans. Yep. And um, it's cool because I'm actually learning a lot about the different beans as well. I usually do a darker roast, like a French roast, but I've noticed now certain, like Guatemalan, I think is my favorite. It's very, um, uh, ha has a nut flavor. And also mm -hmm. then the Sumatra is really has a chocolate thing. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it's cool. So every month I buy a different one. I buy the ones that I, I'm starting to know that I like, but then I try, oh yeah, I, want, I tried a Brazilian one and, you know, mm -hmm. And it's interesting because then you really be roasted basically the same. You can tell what mm. the character of the bean is. So nice. Yeah. yeah I would totally but get into that. Just a, a wrap I haven't completely gone down yet. But I do always buy whole beans and grind them myself. Yeah. There's you know, I've a got a I've got a hand grinder. I got a little I got a little nuts. I got a hand grinder, a little burr grinder. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think out of all y'all, y'all like dark roasts. I don't know. I like a medium. It's it's just, it's got a little more complexity to it. I don't know. I can see that. And also, it, it, Cheryl, is this true that um, lighter coffees have more caffeine in them? That is true. Because the more you roast it, you're cooking it off. So an espresso, okay. there's some myth that because it's a strong flavor, people think it's full of caffeine, but it's just They're a strong, a flavor. right? But it's actually less caffeine than. So maybe Ian's onto something. You needed to play. Well, that's those what I was thinking when he said that he's really he likes the <laughs> caffeine kick. That's what he's talking about. Mm. There's always a lot in the coffee discussions. I have to say, like. You know, Joe, even just your intro to your coffee where you're saying, you know, I have to have this. If I can't get it, I can get by on this other thing. Um, you really also musically, you have you have your gear that you need and you're very adaptable. I've watched you scramble and adapt and no one would ever know um, in many, many concert and professional situations. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, That's interesting. What uh, Can you point to a specific instance of that? Um, I, I mean, the many that came to mind as you were talking is um, all of these, you run these giant BPC shows. I'm not sure if the people listening um, have been, they probably have been, where you cover an entire album. Um, you also are a person who you're teaching you have your teaching work, you have your performances at Berkeley, you have all of the teaching you do in the summer programs and the online program, and then you, you are a very prolific gig player. And um, I just feel as though over the years I've watched you, you know, put on these huge shows after a long day of teaching, knowing that you're running to a bunch of different gigs. And you have like, you know, we've talked about certain shows where you're like, oh, I need a player who does this, this, and this. You come to this rehearsal at this time and you have to bring this, this, and this with you. And then I know that when you're running to the gig, you might encounter like all kinds of crazy variables. And yet anyone listening to you would be like, yeah, I saw Joe Maselli sounded amazing. Like they know how you're going to sound. You have your signature sound, you pull it off. No one would know the chaos that is happening backstage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To the gig or, you know, all of those things. And I think, you probably have hundreds of examples and we could probably spend the whole hour just on that, but. Well, that, that was very flattering. Thank you, Kim. And I literally thought you were going to say, oh yeah, one time you dropped your Les Paul and you picked up Italian and kept playing when you say it was. <laughs> well, that's probably true. You probably did that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you probably did that. Yeah, um, but it is, it can be mayhem. Yeah, with those, um, especially an album like Physical Graffiti, where I needed like a mandolin player, a harmonica player. But, you know, that was just a big show. And um, yeah, there's a lot of details to that. And then when I'm actually playing the show and I get to see the, the video afterwards, I'm like, oh, I thought of everything. But what I was how I was going to look like, you know, I'm wearing like baggy jeans. My hair's like all I'm like all sweaty. I'm just because running on stage, you know, as everything's kind of falling together as we go on. It's like the last thing I think about is 
what I'm going to wear. <laughs> and I always think in these shows, I, I look like disheveled and a mess because it is, it's kind of like chaos right up until the word go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting point to, to drive home to students, because I think sometimes you have this sense when you're young that you, you come up with your signature sound. You're like, I, I need this guitar. I need these pedals. I need this amp. I need all of these things. And even in classical music school, it was like, what height should the chair be? You mm -hmm. know, like what shoes do you wear? All of those things. And then um, it sort of gives the impression that you would always have control over those things in some way. And maybe the more freeing thing is to say like, yes, you're going to have your ideal set up. And then if that doesn't happen, how do you still maintain your sound? How do you still maintain a successful expression of who you are on, on your instrument, even if you don't even have maybe your instrument, maybe, maybe you do drop, drop your Les Paul and you have to grab a telly. And then I would still hear like, oh, wow, you know, the tone's a little different, but that's Joe Masella. You know, you've had to develop that over the years. Um, and do you feel like there's a specific way you try to communicate that to your students? Like by example, obviously, but then mm. you know, how do you- how Yeah, do that you is a great question. The first thing that was coming to mind is that that I think just going with the flow kind of, if something goes wrong on a gig and I need to grab another guitar or actually at that physical graffiti show, I had a Marshall, you know, the super lead Jimmy Page had basically, but I had another little Fender amp running just for kind of fill out the sound in a way that I like. And at a certain point in the most rocking song, the wonton song, right? The Marshall just quit. And now I'm playing out of just a little Princeton. And which, which has, when, it, when it's turned up, it has a, like a nice distorted tone, but all kind of like the body and aggressiveness just dropped out. And, and I was so looking forward to rocking out that, and you, at that point, you can you can get, you know, because I've seen this happen to musicians, they just kind of fall apart. I mean, I'm talking about guys who are great players and they start like stomping their foot and looking at, you know, th but I don't know, maybe it just comes from years of, of playing gigs and having things go wrong. You just, you just keep going. And if you act like something is wrong, obviously everyone's going to notice, but it, I, I make a conscious effort just to stay centered Actually, you know, when I say that, it reminds me of Garrison. Oh, interesting. And that's Garrison. I, when when I, I started hanging around with Garrison, we would talk a lot about that because, you know, he was really into Buddhism and meditating. And and I noticed he kind of got me into that. And I actually spend a lot of time meditating with him and on my own. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the more I did it, the more when anything, if I just, you know, sometimes you're playing and you just do something dumb and you're like, what the heck was that? And sounds horrible. But I would notice I just the more I meditated, the more I would just come back to right here, being right here mm. and just going with the moment. And I think that comes from number one experience and just playing tons of gigs, but also just staying centered. And that may, that kind of maybe has to be cultivated through yeah. a little bit of meditation. It's, I, you know, I'm, it's just something that's I'm saying it comes naturally to me, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I haven't thought about that in a while, but I did spend a lot of time and noticing that the more I meditated when something was going wrong, I would just would get distracted. I'm doing this because I feel like, you know, I, I step outside of myself and you start going, what the heck? But then I, I would feel myself snap back really fast, too. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's a really good point. So over time, when, because you've practiced meditation, you can access it, that benefit right immediately and for people who are listening um garrison fuel is the person joe is talking about who's on our faculty for a number of years almost 40 years and um and uh he really brought a lot of that awareness i think to a lot of us on the faculty just the power of meditating and and what that can do for your playing in any style he was one of my favorite teachers when i was at berkeley mm -hmm. and then when i came back as got hired as faculty after, you know, seeing him and saying hi here and there. I one day approached him on the street. I'm like, Harrison, you always seem so calm and relaxed when you're, I'm like, well, how do you, what are you doing? And then we started talking. That's how I got into meditating with him. And he explained a little bit about what he, his practice. So, but, um, and it was great. I, you know, I loved every minute of that with him, but I also think too, a lot of that just comes from playing tons of gigs and learning how to deal with stuff on the fly.
Yeah, I think what's, so. I think um, dealing with like kind of understanding what's important and having that experience. I think there are a couple kind of misconceptions that you've addressed in this. And one is that um, that idea that you can plan ahead and have the planning outweigh the experience. And, and I think what you're saying is, you know, you do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gigs and then you kind of know that you're good at adapting. You've seen a lot of things before. You've seen related things before. The more you do this, the more centered you can become. Right. And you know, part of that, something else you just said reminded me, you know, being prepared for the possibilities too. That was a learning curve that happened over a lot of years, um, just playing gigs and having something go wrong. Like, oh, why don't I, why don't I have an extra, like my strap broke at a gig one time and I only had one strap and I had to make a strap out of duct tape and that was miserable. <laughs> yeah. I, and it was, it was, a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind sitting and playing, but I guess it was a situation where I couldn't find a stool or a chair to sit in or something and I had a stand, but you know, why didn't, why don't I have two or three extra straps? And, and so basically now I have a, you know, there's a gig bag that of all the stuff I gig with that never comes out of the gig bag. And there's like two of every two or three, four of everything in there, whatever fuses, tubes, straps, cords, 10 sets of strings. That's great. That's a really good point. Um, and, and I cultivate that with students a little bit by, you know, when they come to their lesson, Oh, I forgot my cord. And I'm like, well, you know what? You should buy a cord that just stays in your gig bag. Mm -hmm. Don't take it out and have another cord for home and then kind of grow that from there. Yeah, I think a lot of people that we know have that. You open the trunk of the car and there's like a music store in there. Yeah. It, in the same way that you have an emergency kit in case you get stuck on the side of the road, you have to have a, an emergency kit um, yeah. playing. So, so that's part of adapting when something goes wrong is also having the confidence to say, oh, yeah, I got this because I got my backup stuff. I like that you made a strap out of duct tape, though. I think that's pretty incredible. <laughs> well, at first I was psyched, and the sound, we were, it was a kind of a big, biggish gig with a lot, and there was a sound guy there. So he helped me, and we kind of did it, you know, made it thick like half a dozen times, you know, putting the tape. Then he punched a hole through it with the screwdriver. But you know what happens to duct tape when it gets warm? It starts to stretch. So after a while, I was like, you know, I'm playing like Jimmy Page, you know, with my arms pretty much straight out. <laughs> well, that's good to know. See, now you know that duct tape stretches when it gets warm. That's it worked why. for a while. Then it got a little uh, weird. You know, the one other thing I wanted to bring up, I think a lot of our students um, think about the image, like the way they look when they play. And, um, and I think at different points in your career, that is really important. And then at other times, like you were saying, you might be running from thing to thing to thing to thing. And the most important thing is how you sound and how everything is going, especially since you you serve as MD, you're the music director of all these shows that you do. Um, and I think that's just worth noting that that there's also a balance there, that that's another misconception that especially in, in rock, how you look is more important than how you sound. And it's really not true. It, how you look is important at different times in different ways. Is that, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, I, I like to look presentable. <laughs> I don't actually think about it too much further than that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes if I have the, the thought, oh, like I'm gonna buy a cool new shirt for the gig mm -hmm. and I'll make sure, I, you know, I'll bring an extra pair of boots, you know, other than the shoes I was running around in all day. So I feel a little more like, all right, gig time. You know, kind of can put you in a good space, right? Kind of my sound check, get up, and then my gig, get up. That's great. Um, um, I think, did I, am I answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. But say more if you'd like. Um, no, I, I wish I had more to say about it, but I, I don't think too much about it, <laughs> which is why when I see these videos of the concerts, I'm like, oh, I guess I should have thought a little more about that. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, I think it's just good mentioning. Um, well, it's funny because I, I was showing to a student yesterday, um, the BPC, part of the P BPC video from when we did Led Zeppelin one in 2018. And I, I immediately saw my, my jeans were kind of sinking because I, I forgot a belt. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking that while I was playing, I'm like, oh, I got to pull my pants up. <laughs> Joe, you know, 
a duct tape belt. <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it. I probably didn't have duct tape. <laughs> I could have got a cord, an extra yeah, cord. Yeah, the other instrument cable there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a new fashion sensation at Berkeley if you'd done that. Um, so, Joe, one of the first questions we ask everybody is, um, what about your first days at Berkeley? You've had a number of them because you've been um, a yes. and you've been a teacher. So um, it doesn't matter really which you choose, but when you think about that idea of first days, what are some things that come to mind for you? Well, the first day as a teacher was uh, at the, I believe it was the five week. Actually, you know, just before we, we got on this um, Zoom meeting here, I, I looked at my emails and I got my 25 year congratulations thing. So I guess it'll be 25 years this summer. I did my first five week. Now I'm trying to remember, was it the five week or guitar sessions? I think it was five week and then guitar sessions. But anyway, I, I just remember going to Rick and Rick had, Larry had seen me play, come to see me play in Worcester. And um, I was talking to Rick a little bit. So they knew what I was about. And obviously, you know, believed in me as a teacher, but I still felt like, Okay, so here's your, you know, they handed me the schedule. Here's your first classes, performance skills, this, read it. I'm like, okay, so what do I do? And they were like, yeah, you're, you're good. You know what you're doing, go do it. And I just remember being like, okay, I'll go do that. <laughs> Having no, not being sure what I was going to do. And of course it went fine and great. But um, I remember feeling um, kind of a little panic, like, oh. But also being really like, wow, they really um, believe in me and trust me, which was a, a great feeling coming, you know, from those guys. Cause I really looked up to Rick and Larry. So that I remember that emotion of that first day. So many people have, we all have this uh, re remembrance of um, going in and, and saying like, okay, what should I be doing? And they're like, just go be great, you know, go be yourself. And yeah, that's what, yeah, exactly. That's what they said. Just go do your thing. You're good at it. Yeah. That's, um, because I know they meant that. Right? Yes, absolutely. And that's why they came and found you. And I, I think it's interesting that almost every person has that reaction that you had where you think like, wow, really? Like, you know, I'm glad that that's true. And yet, did it take you a while to sort of believe that in a way yourself? Um. I mean, I, I felt confident that I could do a good job. I think I was asking them, is there anything you need me to, to do that you, what should I give them? What They're like, you know exactly what to do. So I think just, I took that and ran with it. Yeah. That, that, that actually gave me the confidence. All right, I see. They, they want me to just be me and do my thing. And I have a lot of good things to offer. I mean, I was confident that I did, but I guess it's kind of weird in that moment, like right before the first class, they, I mean, they hired me. So obviously... They were saying that, <laughs> but then just to hear it, you know, the first day, you know, right before class, I'm like, okay, this is on me. And yeah, then of course that first year or two, I was scrambling to generate presentable material, mm -hmm. writing things out and making all my transcriptions look nice. Yeah. And you know, you have really run with it because you've developed quite a bit of our rock curriculum. You've written several labs. And, um, and you've sort of <clears throat> come up with your, your approach that has now extended beyond what you do at the college into the preparation materials for people doing summer programs, and then also for the continuing education people and also some people who will transfer in through Berkeley Online. Like mm -hmm. You've developed an enormous amount of rock curriculum. And I'm wondering if there are specific things that you could put your finger on, even if just one or two examples of things that came directly from your experience as a player, um, right into the way you teach certain classes, or maybe a specific lab that you um, that you approach. Um, I, I think all my gig experience informs how I'm teaching. Really, any class. Um, 
I'm, you know, I want students, whatever it is I'm talking about, I want them to be able to take it and, and use it however they, they would like creatively and in, in gigs and in their own writing. And, um, yeah, it's, um, Yeah, I, I can't really think of an instance where I'm, I'm telling them some, oh, this is cool. Here's something you'll never use. <laughs> I feel like. That's right. You know, I've played, I get, I've been fortunate enough to play so many different kinds of gigs that um, pretty much everything I talk about when it comes to the Zeppelin stuff, the Satriani stuff in the classic rock lab, that mm -hmm. it's all, I, I feel like, oh, here's how I use this in this situation. And here's mm -hmm. how I use that. One of my favorite examples that I've witnessed of this is um, is the Jimmy Page lab, um, because uh, I came to visit it. I think it was my first year. I, I remember that. That was yeah, that was a while back. Yeah, it was a long time ago now. And yeah. uh, I brought a, a person who is from our board, who is going right. to be a new board member, who had no experience with um, like basically contemporary music curriculum. And we shared an alma mater. And so he and I had just met in the hallway outside. And I said, well, it's basically like a music appreciation class, except it's practical. Like the people actually have to learn how to. So they're learning the history of this. They're learning the style of it, as mm -hmm. you may have when you're in school. But now they actually have to be able to execute. And they have to be able to play it. And we came in. And, you know, for someone who is uninitiated to a rock curriculum to be there, were, I think there were nine or 10 people. It was a hugely populated class. It felt like yeah. that room. And um, and you had told, you know, it was like the, the culture shock was a little bit heavy because it's like all these rock guitar players in the room. And then you really broke the ice because I think you said, uh, yeah, we're having a really common rock star moment because um, my four year old daughter spilled some orange juice on my computer and so i'm not able to do the slow down software and it really broke the ice because this guy totally related to you and he was like oh okay and then you went around the room and it was amazing because i think from the outside it's hard for people to know like what um a creative and structured curriculum for rock music looks like mm. and so um that our board member left just raving about like, wow, you could hear the process of how he was showing everybody, you know, what are the salient points of this stylistically? How do you execute it? And you can mm -hmm. hear yet yeah, every student's unique, expressive interpretation of the material. Mm -hmm. And he left having like, oh, I love this young woman's playing. I love this young guy's playing and, and um, really appreciating the process. And, and I think that's something worth just mentioning that it's a, a curriculum in itself and then the last part that i loved was you and i got to hang out a little bit with jimmy page that later that semester oh wow that was the same year yeah and it was really fun to listen to you talk with him about the order of the curriculum you know why is this solo he was like why do you think this one this tune should be here and this tune should be here. And you were like, oh, okay, listen, I'll tell you why, because, you know, and it was really interesting just to get his perspective as the artist composer and your perspective as the, you know, the expert in pedagogy, just mm -hmm. kind of talking him through his music and how the students relate to uh, it. I wish I had a recording of that conversation. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was so shell-shocked after talking to him. Like, mm -hmm. wow, I, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was talking to Jimmy Page, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I do I do remember, yeah. Yeah. Ta yeah. He, he specifically asked at a certain point, he's like, do you teach the class 10 years gone? He specifically wanted to know if we went over that song. And I and actually, yes, because everybody loves that one. And I always go over that song and I said, oh, yeah, of course, that's like a perennial fave with students and, you know, just people in general. But I never I think I was just so caught up in the moment. I just, well, why do, why are you asking that? Mm -hmm. But I, I think maybe it maybe is one of his more um, mm -hmm. proud uh, moments as a composer. And he always talks about how there's like 14 different guitar tracks on that song. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's one one thing in particular I remember about that conversation. So when you I don't, can I, here's a kind of a funny aside to that story. You know, John Mulroy, the piano teacher mm -hmm. here at Berkeley. Um, 
the next day after he went to graduation and the next day he was in one of the used record stores in Cambridge, like an hour or two later after graduation. And Jimmy Page happened to be there too. So and he saw, he, he noticed a commotion. He looks up and he saw Jimmy Page and people were, you know, kind of around him asking for autographs and he waited for the right moment. He walked up and he says, Hey, Jimmy, I don't want to bother you. Um, but congratulations on your honorary doctorate. Um, it was, you know, great having you here. And, uh, you know, maybe you met my friend. He, he teaches the Jimmy. Pa he's like, oh, yeah, Joe, tell him I said hi. <laughs> so John texted me a few. He's like, hey, Jimmy Page says hi. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I love that. What I loved about that little moment, that little hang that we had was how interested he was in um, how you do everything. You know, he was asking me advice about his A finger and his classical technique. And we were talking about, babe, I'm going to leave you and how challenging that song can be. And different right. story to heaven if you're a fingerstyle player. And actually, on babe, I'm going to leave you. Let me ask you, did, did he talk about how he finger picks it or does he yeah. play it with the pick? He finger picks it, but um, well, that's what our conversation was about. The melody is often played by your weakest finger if you're finger picking. And so how you, um, work on your technique so that you can free up that finger and bring that melody line out. That mm -hmm. was the topic of our conversation. So I'm, okay. I'm unclear as to like how he's done it over the years, but the second he knew I was a classical guitarist, he just made a beeline over and we were basically playing on our forearms, you know, and yeah, show. Yep. I, I remember that. Yeah. He was like, okay, great. You know, like I want a lesson in the middle of this moment of my honorary doctorate. And um, I think that's, really telling um, because you've sort of gone through the myth into like the practicalities of how you play certain music and I think players and composers who are serious no matter their level of fame or or you know how we see them that's part of this process is really learning this music like mm. rock music isn't something that's like a bolt of lightning that hits you um, mm -hmm. of inspiration and if it does then you still have to like kind of work at on your skills in a systematic way and and one thing i think is really cool is you created that curriculum in our curriculum at berkeley like here's how you can work on being a great rock guitar player um and mm -hmm. and sort of elevating in some ways rock music into a co collegiate curriculum in a way that yeah like the the process for that is a process just in the way that classical and jazz pedagogy is a process Absolutely. So like, I remember specifically, I'm not sure why the song that we were working on when you came to the Jimmy Page lab was um, the Rover. Mm -hmm. Right. Does that, do you remember that? That might be right. Yeah. But I, just in talking about how I break things down, that's because I, and I was just going over this tune with someone yesterday, you know, it's an E kind of pentatonic riff and then it goes through the, the power chords that are all, kind of diatonic to like A major. And then the solo, you know, is uh, like E mixolydian. So we, we break, I break those things down and kind of go over, you know, well, he's riffing with this E pentatonic scale and here's how, here's this whole scale in the second position and then he moves it to the seventh position and it looks like this. And in the class, so we'll actually practice those things, kind of pull them out of the song and like know the, the scales that he's seeing on the fretboard. And then here's how he's thinking about these power chords that are related to this key. And then here's E mixolydian in these different positions that he's going through. So yeah, I try to break it down to all the, the elements and then have them practice them kind of outside the song as well. Mm -hmm. So they, they can take all that information and uh, be creative with it, which is one thing I really love doing with the Jimmy Page and Joe Satriani labs. We look at the tunes and especially the Satriani lab, he, he does so many cool compositional techniques. And, um, you know, I'll show them for whatever. So what, what are we doing this week? Um, can't even remember. Um, it's a something Joe Satriani calls pitch axis, where the modes kind of revolve around A. And it's a, it's a song called Engines of Creation, where he arpeggiates, does these different A arpeggios. And, but the mode's changing with each chord. So we look at that and we look at kind of the chord voicings. How is he getting that mode sound out of one chord? And I kind of give them a list of chords for each mode. So if you just play one chord, you get that mode sound. And then I have them write their own like eight or 12 measure progression with a melody. 
or the same thing like well in the jimmy page i will go over the rain song and i show them the tuning and i break down some of the cool voicings that he does with that and i'm like all right everyone write eight measures using this tuning this week yeah that's and really that's one of the most satisfying things for me about teaching those classes is turning the students on to being creative with this stuff not just learning the solo in the rover or that cool intro to this joe satriani song but what what is he thinking about and how where is he getting this information from on the you know on the neck like how is he dealing with it right and then by extension if you had those tools what would you come up with yeah exactly oh, that's right exactly hey cheryl what is on your mind at this point Wow. Well, two things. What you just were talking about is the creativity. That always, I love that. That's the best part about teaching because you right. give, you know, it's almost like you gave everybody the same group of vocabulary words and they all come up with totally different stories. And I'm always fascinated. Oh, it's so cool that. to see all the different <laughs> things that they come up with, right? That's the best part yeah, for me. It is the best part. Um, but I, I, you know, also, I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier about just going out and doing so many gigs right that experience that really the only thing that makes you prepared for that is your preparation on the music so that that goes right because I, I, you know every gig you do it's not your it's not your practice space where the performance is happening right it's in some weird venue with a broken amp or you know whatever happens strings break right. or these things happen but if you're really over i always feel like be over prepared on the music right that's going to go fine like you can trust that goes right. fine because you're it's it's never going to be right I mean, you know, we could all, all, everyone here's done so many gigs and you could just go on and on and on about just weird things that happen that, but they don't have to do with the actual music, the performance of the music, you know, so right. when that's, that's a great strong, you're going to, you're going to be ready for anything because anything is going to happen. That's right. That's a great point. And I do, you know, but all that running around you were talking about earlier, Kim, that that's true. That does happen. But the weeks leading up to that, all I'm doing is sitting in the basement playing physical graffiti over and over and going, getting into the nuances of the solo. Yeah. So by the time I show up to do the show, hopefully I'm not thinking hard at all about any of that. There's always a couple of things. I'm like, Oh, I wish I had a little more time with this one thing or that, but that always happens. But yeah, that's a great point, Cheryl. And, th and that's another way to get around. Um, if something goes wrong, you're, you still can play the music. It doesn't matter if it's coming out of a Marshall head or a eight inch Princeton speaker, still the music. And um, I, I guess another thing that makes me think of personally is I don't get too caught up. I mean, I love a great tone, don't get me wrong, but if, if it sounds not the way I want it to sound, no, nobody else knows that. So just put it out there and it'll come across, right? No one's not, not no one knows that I'm in a panic because my Marshall head just blew up. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and also, I mean, you have an audience that really, they just want to hear some music and be entertained. They don't want to see well, you bumming yeah. out. Like, oh man, my toe's not happening. <laughs> they, yeah, they the don't as long as there's some, some kind of tone. Yeah, I, I, I can operate in that space. It doesn't bum me out. I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, one time I was uh, doing a GB gig in my amp, you know, and now I always have like a Blues Junior in the car too, by the way, in addition to my main amp. But uh, I was at in the, around the Boston Aquarium. I remember that like in a tent or something, but my amp blew up and I had, a, and it was like the early in the gig and I had to play through the PA for the rest of the night and just listen to myself through a monitor. And it's not, it's kind of more, you know, kind of, it's GB. So there's some clean funk guitar stuff going on, but there's a lot of rock stuff happening. And I was dry and clean through the PA all night, but I still had a good time. You know, I, that happened to me <laughs> on a gig. It was also what you call GB or call them club dates in New York. And I remember we were playing and it was early and I was like, 
Mm, they do they have bacon in the happy hour, like in the cocktails? And I just hear somebody going, "Oh no!" And there was just smoke billowing, billowing out of my amp, and it wasn't bacon. It was. <laughs> it was uh, your your amp cooking. It was, and I did the same thing. I just was like, I was really bummed, but we had that was the beginning of the gig, and so I just plugged into the PA. I did the same thing. Show must go on. Yeah. And the, and the other thing too, that makes something when something like that goes wrong, I, surrounded by so many other great musicians who can kind of like pick up the slack a little bit. Maybe I don't feel like soloing, so you know I'll give the piano player more of the solos or the sax player, whoever. You know, and I, I was thinking about um, a a show I did early at, at Berkeley, my first days teaching. Um, I think Larry and Rick had asked me to do something for guitar sessions uh and uh, the band was larry finn dave lamina and danny morris right and we had for whatever reason zero rehearsals you know i gave everyone the tunes but i was being you know only being there a year and kind of being freaked out by oh in berkeley it's all guitar players I, you know i was used to doing tons of gigs but you know it's not all musicians just going like okay go impress me now so that's something to get over when you're a teacher at berkeley too right just being, well, you feel that. And John Finn gave me great advice. He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. He's like, we all suck. <laughs> that sounds like a like, John Finn thing just, to say. Just do your thing. But anyway, I, um, for some reason, I'm like, oh, we didn't rehearse. This is going to be terrible. And I mean, I love those guys there and they're all so great. And we played the set and nothing bad happened, but I was so out of, like so fixated on the fact that we didn't rehearse and no one's gonna I don't know why because I've done pickup gigs all my life and stuff with no rehearsal and they're all it was just the pressure of being at Berkeley and like worrying about it being perfect I went home miserable that night I got the um at the time they're the the dat tapes right the little and I'm like I'm never gonna listen to this so the next day then I went to work the next day I came home that night I'm like all right I'm gonna listen to this and it was it was great and I was so bummed out that I was didn't enjoy the moment with those, you know, that awesome band. And I was too worried about, I don't even know what, but just, you know, that taught me to, you know, have confidence in, in my band. It's going to, you know, the guys that are around me, because they're all so good. They're going to make me sound good. That I'm so glad you said that, because I think that's such a common experience that we've all had. And I think everyone has had that moment where you're just so overwhelmed by the way the preparation didn't go the way you thought um, by the pressure of the situation i think being at a place like berkeley catches people off guard certainly me certain times like of how much pressure you feel because your audience is full of great musicians and instead right. of looking at that as a bunch of supportive listeners you think like oh my god it's like i'm oh. about two minutes away from being exposed as a fraud and and well, so, knows. you know, to, <laughs> what, I'm, what I also remember about that show, too, is I looked up at one point kind of in my, you know, and I don't think anyone could tell that I was kind of in a mood about it. But I look up and I see Rick and Bruce Saunders leaning against the back wall. And I was like, oh. <laughs> right. And they were probably loving everything. Yeah, no, no, but they were very complimentary. Of course, I talked to them after. But, you know, but it just it made my own insecurities, you mm -hmm. know. But that was a great lesson. I, I tell that to students all the time. I mean, you know. Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy the moment because it's probably going better than you think. Well, the other lesson in that is what you said before, that the reason it's going better than you think is because of all of the incredible preparation that you've put in as a player. Well, and right. So yeah. You sort of come out like your playing comes out no matter how you feel about it. And then there's so there's the preparation issue and then there's how you feel about the situation. And sometimes those two things don't mix. But if you've you really prepared then most likely no matter how you feel about it you are having a great day yeah i heard um who was it sometimes you feel like you're not playing well or like it just nothing sounds right and um i i feel like to everyone else it sounds just like you it's i feel like sometimes you're just working harder right to, to stay in the moment or do the thing that you normally do yeah and other and other days, it just it's it flows more easily, and you know, 
you're just kind of in the zone. So it feels like, feels like you're playing great, but it, it sounds just like the night before when you ah, I didn't play so great, but it's, I think it's all in here. Yeah. Joe Satriani said a great thing in an interview. He's like, I gave up a long time ago trying to figure out what constitutes a great show for me. Cause he's like, some nights I walk off stage and I'm thinking, ugh, that was just miserable. And the rest of the band, like, wow, that was amazing. You sounded great tonight. And so he's like, who am I to tell them that? No, I didn't. If that's their perception, then that that's what it is to them. That's right. Well, to that end, when you have a, when you have a moment where you feel like it didn't go great, how do you handle that in that moment with the other band members? Do you have advice for people about that? Like, like, do you, do you kind of wait and let that out when you get home? Do you, um, ideally, uh, I mean, not unless there was some kind of major train wreck with a band and some, some arrangement issues. No, I don't, I don't, um, burden anyone with my damn me. <laughs> I stink. Um, no, I think just over the year, you know, what was really important to me around 2000, I read, um, effortless mastery mm-hmm. and just sort of getting in my head, you know what, don't, don't be defined by any one gig. You're not, you're you are not your last gig, whether it was amazing or whether it was horrible. So I kind of just will shrug my shoulders if I have a particularly bad gig for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, But I also think with years of playing and the amount of gigs that I've done, I don't, it's sort of like this consistent consistency you get, no matter what kind of day you're having, you can always kind of put on a happy face and do a good job. And I even tell that to students. I say, you know, you come and watch me at a gig. You can't tell if I'm having the best day of my life or the worst day of my life. I'm, I'm there to do my, and actually it's teaching is like that too. Mm-hmm. When it, I could be having like a miserable day, but as soon as I like walk into a room with a bunch of kids and start teaching, everything else just melts away. And I'm just in the moment with that. And I think that comes from doing it a lot and enjoying it, obviously. And, and gigging is the same way. Mm-hmm. As soon as I start, everything else just psh, I have a tape of a show I did and I almost didn't go to, I had like a 102 fever and I was miserable and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm just going to, I can, it was only like an hour set thing with a couple other bands. And I, I went and it was, it was kind of like a looser thing where we did a lot of, you know, jamming like long solos. Um, and I didn't care what the heck I was playing. I just wanted to get back home and get to bed. And I listened to the tape of that the next day and I played great i never say that but i was i'm like that was a really good gig and my head was so not into it yeah so what's that all about <laughs> uh, sometimes know. you just shut down that inner editor you don't really you're not kind of like it's almost kind of like effortless mastery you just don't don't be judging yourself constantly mm. i think that's really good just, advice just do your thing the less you worry about it, the better you play. And I was in such a state of not caring that I actually played really well. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, Ian, I'm wondering what's on your mind right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of these things are pretty universal, right? Like these things about like wh- how you perceive how you played, um, being overprepared for a gig, you know, um, dealing with the unknowns, just sounding different. When you play live, when you play in a gig, you just, you sound different. The experience is so different. It's like- Different than when you're playing at home? Yeah, I mean, you just play some things and you're like, this is just, it. it's like you're doing something totally different because you are, right? And I think that these are all really universal. And I think Kim brought up a really interesting thing earlier, which was like, just like the pedagogical aspect of like how you broke down that led led zeppelin song like and it's like rock and i don't know i was just thinking about how specifically like you as like a master rock guitar player and how a lot of other places you can't go and study with somebody like you at like this kind of level and i think it's interesting because you know, there's there was like a historical moment when, you know, they didn't think that jazz could be taught in a university, right? Like mm-hmm. I was reading uh, the Jerry Coker book, Improvising Jazz, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like, the first chapter is just like, you know, well, they say they can't teach jazz in schools and you can't, 
you can't learn jazz from a teacher and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, in my entire life, like jazz has been the music of higher education in a way. Right. So it's like funny to like, look back at that and to see all these like ways that they thought about that. And I'm just curious about like how it is like as a rock player doing that at a university in like one of the only places that you can. Right. I guess. Right. I, I mean, I don't know who else has, I, am I out in California has a kind of maybe a rock curriculum, but yeah. Yeah. I think this is one of the most extensive places. A absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting because when I was a student at Berkeley, there was, I think John Finn was hired my last semester there. It was he'd been there about 30 years. So he would have been hired around 1989 or 90. Yep. He and Robin. We're, we're on okay. the, you know, right around that same. So I, I was studying with guys like Garrison, Jim Kelly. I love, you know, jazz rock. J Jim was the closest guy to a, a like a straight up rock player that was there at the time. But I, I was perfectly happy to be there. Um, who else? Um, John Wilkins. Um, I feel like I'm leaving someone out who's a private teacher right now. Uh but I, I studied a lot of jazz and Ian, that book you're talking about, I have that book. I have a bunch of, you know, then I studied with Charlie Benakis and how he kind of broke stuff down and explained it. And what, what you actually made me just realize is I think I took the template of all that stuff and just plugged in rock stuff. Like how people, guys broke down, you know, jazz and how to practice it. You can do the same thing with rock guitar. Mm -hmm. So that, that was actually a, a, probably a big part of where, where my teaching style came from, was studying with guys like Garrison, John Wilkins, uh, Jim Kelly, mm. reading books like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ian, there's a I do that with students, something Charlie showed me all the time. He would write out sort of these number lines of like a, ja a jazz line, but he'd write it out in core tones and tensions. And kind of with like arrows and the shape of the, and then he'd make students, he would do this with everyone and you'd have to play it in all keys all over the neck, you know, really fast. And I do that. I do that now. I always think of Charlie when I'm, I'll do that student will be like, I really love this Satriani lick. And I'm like, well, he's just doing this and it's the Sharpalin, the Liddy and this or that. And, and so I'll write out the line. I'm like, all right, go home and practice this in all keys. Now, if you really want to own it, just yeah. stuff like that. It's just coming straight out of the jazz discipline yeah i mean you're finding a lot of connection points not just with the pedagogy itself but also musically as i feel like a lot of students come to you when they when they want to um kind of keep their foundation in rock and also broaden into jazz or fusion styles and then vice versa people who have studied jazz and want to branch out into a rock genre so it seems like you took the pedagogy and then you also found data points and technique points of connection in there as well. Yeah. Um, there is a question that Ian asks every time, and I think it'd be a good time to ask it. All right. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, what's something that students you get in your teaching studio or your lab that they might come in with a slate of questions or thinking about something in one particular way, like, but you might think like, well, actually you should be thinking about it this way, or the question you should be asking is this, like, what's something that a student should be thinking about or asking that they might not think to ask? Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of a hard question because I feel like everyone has their unique set of uh, issues or, or things they should or focus on. Um, <laughs> you know, one, one funny thing <laughs> that often happens, I'll hear from a student, oh, it's, I heard I should do this, that, or the other when it comes to whatever registration or the next class. And I'm like, well, well who told you that? Because it'll be something kind of goofy. And they'll be like, well, my roommate told me that. And I'm like, why are you listening to them? <laughs> I've heard that answer over the years. My roommate told me, I'm like, since when are they the expert? Don't, how about don't listen to your roommate? 
That is I gotta say, that is one of the better answers that we've got <laughs> to that question. If you have a question That's about excellent. signing up for classes or where are you do what are you doing for registration? Don't don't ask your roommate. <laughs> Cheryl, you may have killed her. She's laughing herself, unable to breathe <laughs> over there. <laughs> What, one okay. thing I do try to get guys to do early on in the semester is just because I know then they'll get buried with a lot of other stuff. I'm like, you know what, while your classes are just getting rolling and you might not have a lot of projects, papers, X, Y, practice your butt off right now. Like, let's, let's get this proficiency thing under control this first month before you, you have lab projects, harmony, whatever, recording, this and that. So I, I like to get students practicing a lot the first few weeks of school because it, it could, with a lot of guys, it tends to fall off as the semester goes on, I feel like. See, that's also, I like both of those answers because it's, it's so practical and it's based in experience, right? Because you know, especially a person that is out there gigging a lot and you have, you have students and you have family and all that, that time management is the secret to getting yeah. it done. So that, that's such a great way to get folks around that you know early on like well look at look at your time how do you use your time and this is the time to practice now because you won't have it later right so if you get this all this stuff under your fingers the first month of school then it can just be a review as we go on and we can actually maybe learn a few tunes and so it's like getting it's just getting ahead of things right yeah stay on top you know? of it but but it's easier to do that early on in the semester i feel like if you want to get some guitar stuff down and, you know, every student's different too. Some guy, like y'all get an MP&E major and they'll be like, dude, I just want to pass my proficiencies and can we just play Led Zeppelin songs for the rest of the time? Because I'm after my four semesters, I'm just going to be MP&E all the way. You know, so I, I kind of balance that with the kind of student I'm dealing with too. And then, you know, you have a performance major and we can kind of get more heavy with the playing stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's interesting point too, because I think we know something that students may not realize that no matter your major, your foundation on your instrument is essential to your life in music. Mm -hmm. um, those of us who've worked in studios and, and, and engineering or producing capacities or even just playing in studios, um, you, well, obviously when you play, you need a deep knowledge of your instrument, but you really do when you produce an engineer. If you don't if you can't hear it on your instrument, it is actually a lot harder to hear it um, with your ears when you're working on a record. Absolutely. I work with an engineer with um, who I've done all my, most of my original stuff with, um, this guy Dave Minahan at Woolly Mammoth in, in Waltham, and he's a great guitar player. And yeah. he does a, he often has great ideas for maybe something I'm trying to do. He's like, hey, did you think about, or why don't we use that amp instead? Because I think the tone you're going for is this, or like he has just a really good conception of rock guitar stuff. Yeah. And he's like a Jedi, uh, you know, as an engineer on Pro Tools and he's amazing, but he brings a lot of musicality to his engineering skills. I, I think that you're touching on this point that comes up too, where, you know, everybody hits a point at Berkeley where you find out that there's a depth of, of knowledge that's required on the instrument that you didn't know was there, that you may not have seen before in the same way, and you kind of hit your personal wall and things that just felt easy and, and the guitar felt like your best friend, now suddenly it's betrayed you and everything's harder and it's much easier to say, I don't really need this because I'm going to be a producer or I'm going to be a music business person or I'm going to be, um, you know, music therapy or whatever. And so it doesn't really matter. Instead of saying like, wow, this, this is something that has really thrown me. How can I get deeper into it to become a better music business person mm -hmm. or engineer? And, mm -hmm. and um, it happens to performance majors too, obviously, right? It happens to all of us because, you know, we all hit those plateaus or, or real canyons in, in feeling like we know what we're doing. And um, it sounds like your approach helps people work through those moments, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, I try, you know, with guys who think, oh, I just want to get through the proficiencies and just can we play, you know, I'll be like, all right, but, you know, here's some really cool stuff you can do with 
you know, triads when you're thinking about these Led Zeppelin songs or, you know, harmonic minor. This is a really good thing when you're learning this Satriani. Look at what, look what Satriani, how he uses this. And maybe then I'll, I'll get him, you know, kind of get them a little more deeply into the stuff they think they just want to get through because I have to do it. And I present some cool musical examples of Joe Satriani using the harmonic minor scale or how Hendrix uses triads up and down the neck like in that, you know, the proficiency uh, level two stuff. I think that's one of the most valuable things uh, on any of the proficiencies is the triad stuff. And I, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 oh, I'm, especially to, I mean, to everybody, but you know, I, I, there's so many great examples of like Hendrix or I, everybody using triads in cool ways. So uh, point is, I just, I present them with cool musical examples of stuff they in a, context they like and then they can then they get more into practicing it for real because they, they recognize the value of it in something that they like i think that's a huge moment i mean for people who are listening who might not know the proficiencies are our final exam materials they're a set of data that involve scales and triads and core different chords and sight reading and repertoire that everyone regardless of style practices and is tested on every semester and there's different set for every semester. And, mm -hmm. and one thing I think um, sometimes people forget is that it's, if you look at it as a chicken and the egg kind of thing, it's not the egg in the sense that here's a whole bunch of data and you may use it sometime as you become a chicken. You know, it's like the chicken went out into the world and had gigs for like 30 or 40 years and then said like, what is all the data on the guitar I wish I had learned so that I can play in my style and a variety of styles and take on anything that comes to me professionally. And mm -hmm. then came back to Berkeley with a bunch of other chickens and wrote the proficiency material and the final exam material. So it was written by the chicken. It's not the egg, right? This is the stuff that we continuously review. We're actually in a big review now. We're, we're um, reinforcing all of the proficiency materials so that it's relevant for people. So um, I mm -hmm. think trust, mm -hmm. trusting the chicken is really important and understanding that it's not that this might be part of music they you want to learn and write. It is because foundationally, by definition, that's why it's in the proficiency right. in the first place. I think those students come and they like, oh, this test I got to do. It's well, what is it? it's just some dumb stuff. And so you kind of, that's why you have to present it in cool musical context. Some guys get it right out of the gate. Other guys, you kind of have to lead to, to that realization. Yeah, that's great. Um, hey, Cheryl, what is on your mind here as we're kind of wrapping up our cup of coffee? Um, well, Joe, thanks for coming by and sharing. I think everything that you talked about was so practical and based in real life experience and and that point of view you just got to go out and do a million gigs like go out there don't wait just start doing it now so yeah. i think that's um great for everybody to hear and also you know even you talking about your um feeling nervous to play at berkeley i think it's always good when the students know and hear about that because they're feeling that. Of course. So, so I think, yeah, I think there's a lot that you shared with us that, that is really, people are gonna really enjoy listening to and connect oh. with. Well, thanks. Thank you guys. Sure. Hey Ian, what about you? <clears throat> yeah, I just wanna reiterate what Joe said about getting ahead of things when things are slow. That is such good advice. And then also, <laughs> Don't always believe your roommates about wacky things they say about registration. Contact me, actually. I'm the guy. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So I'm trying to make your lives easier by telling them that. We appreciate that, Joe. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and uh, you're not bothering us, everybody. Just come and, and talk with Ian and Ben and, and Cheryl and I, and we'll hook you up. And, um, and your roommate. You can send your roommate to us as well. <laughs> so Joe, do you have any final thoughts for, for everybody or any advice for Cheryl and Ian and I as we're kind of looking at oh. upcoming semesters? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. 
Um, well, thank you guys for, for holding it all together this past year, number one. That's been huge and right. What a year. Yeah. Yeah. And talking year. about adapting, you know, about gigs, things going wrong and then having to adapt. You know, you're right about that. We were just laughing about the first day, um, right before we knew we had to leave. We only had like three days left to get ready. And we were all, we all came emergency faculty meeting into 411 and learned how to do the, um, remote learning yeah even that um at the beginning of guitar sessions last summer me scrambling i was <laughs> i had like 10 10 zoom meetings with john finn just trying to get my to be able to play those couple of songs yeah. and even then even all, after all the preparation i did there was something wacky about that when i was actually doing it for you guys mm -hmm. that would like the sound was off in my headphones and it was the playback was too loud i couldn't really hear myself and it, you know, I was like, uh, I have no idea how this is sounding to them, but just having to stay in that thing. So actually a one, one piece of advice I would have is, you know, you got to um, cultivate calmness. And uh, that's a big part of performing and being a musician and, and stay healthy. I'm, I'm kind of big on that. I, I don't know. I've just naturally always gravitated towards fitness and nutrition, but um, for me, it's, it's huge. And like I said, you know, when things are going wrong, I can kind of feel myself, uh, but I can pull myself back. And, and that, that, that's another kind of practice, right? Meditating and cultivating that kind of mindset. And that, that helps at school too, not just in, I mean, I used to get so uh, having to play for, uh, you know, like proficiency tests or actually having to play for Charlie Benakis was always torture for me too. You'd be like, all right, man, let's play a tune now. And he was just so great. I'd be like, oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, stay, whatever it means for you or however you can come to it. But, but you know, be, and I talk about this a lot with, with students as well. Like, man, you look really tired and pale today. What's going on with you? And yeah, well, I was playing blah, blah, blah till four o'clock in the morning the past week. I'm like, dude, you got to go to bed and get some sleep and get some sunshine and go for a walk around the building and whatever you can do to kind of, because this is what, you know, this is the vessel we're using to do all this. So we got to keep it uh, fit and strong. That's right. Yeah. And that's really great advice to end on too, as we're coming out of a stressful time, but we're still, we're, we're still in a stressful time of transition. Yeah. So yeah. I really appreciate you say that. And I do hope that all of our Berkeley guitarists listening will take a little of that to heart and take care of yourselves um, this week and, and every week. Um, Joe Masella, thank you so much for being our guest today on Coffee. My, my pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, cheers to you, Cheryl. And cheers, Ian. And um, everyone, we will see you and uh, we'll be talking to you on the next Coffee Talk.